what does a rebel look like? What does a rebel look like? Okay, think back to the 1960s, 1970s. The hippies were the rebels of the U.S. in that season. And talk to somebody around you. What did, what did hippies look like in the 60s and 70s? How did they show their rebellion? Talk to each other. Go ahead and talk to each other. Turn and talk to each other. All right, the men had long hair. That was just shocking. They had the, they had the long, flowy clothes and a whole different style, right? So they were, they were communicating a statement by their appearance that we are anti-establishment. Okay, so rebels in the 60s and 70s. Okay, when I was growing up, there were multiple ways to, ex, uh, to express rebellion. One of those in the 80s and 90s was, the, was to dress in a goth fashion. Any of you remember the goth style? Okay, if you know what that is, turn to somebody around you, talk to each other about what did that look like? How did you show that you were part of the goth fashion culture? Looked like black eyeliner, thick black eyeliner, black lipstick, you were all black. Mostly you didn't smile at anybody, you just kind of looked sad. And uh, yeah, yeah, so that's what, the, that's what a rebel looked like from the goth culture. Okay, one more question. Turn to somebody around you and say, what does a rebel look like today? What does a rebel look like today? Talk, talk amongst yourselves. In our series on the prodigal son, the younger son is who looks like a rebel. He, ha- he was a young man with a backpack, He had a loaded bank card. He had dollar signs in his eyes. He was seeking fame and fortune. And so he said to his family, so long, family. See you later. I'm out of here. And in his rebellion, he left the home of his father and traveled away to a far country. Sometimes rebellion looks like that. But sometimes rebellion looks quiet. Sometimes rebellion looks like hippie clothes and long hair. Sometimes it looks like black eyeliner and wearing all black. Sometimes it looks like dollar signs in your eyes. But sometimes rebellion smolders quietly under the surface like a volcano with hot lava before it erupts. Nobody really knows it's there except for little glimmers of it popping up here and there. In the parable of the prodigal son, we've been talking about how prodigal means extravagant. And this younger son, this prodigal, was extravagantly wasteful. He wasted everything. He wasted his money. He wasted his father's money. He wasted his time. He wasted his family relationships, just basically threw them away. He wasted his life. He wasted everything. And as as the story goes, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know as the story goes, he eventually gets to a point of hitting bottom. He runs out of money, and because he runs out of money, he runs out of friends, he runs out of food, he runs out of everything, okay? And he is in a dark, dark, dark place. And so when he hits bottom, he humbly turns back toward home and says, maybe they'll give me a place to sleep, and maybe they'll, they'll let me be a servant in the home. But his dad surprises him. 
His father surprises him by meeting him, by watching for him, by seeing him coming down the road from a long distance away, and by running to him, throwing his arms around him, kissing him on the cheek, and then throwing him a party. Today, I want to look at the same parable. We, we've talked about how a parable is a, a story that Jesus told in order to teach us something. Today, I want to look at this parable from a different perspective, from the perspective of the other son, the older brother. We've only focused on the first half of this parable, and it seems like it's a nice finished parable, but there's a second half to it. Jesus keeps on going, and he teaches this part. Now, in this part about the older brother, it's this older brother who seems like a good guy. He's the one who stays home. He stays home working in the fields. He is responsible. He is reliable. He seems to be hardworking. He's not saying, like the younger brother saying, Dad, I wish you were dead so I could have your inheritance money. Get, give me your money now. He doesn't do any of that. He doesn't talk like the younger brother. He's the good son. You know, there's the good son who doesn't cause the problems, the one who doesn't stay out too late, who break the rules or do anything too weird. You want to talk about rebels, <laughs> the younger one is the one who wears the gauges and the black eye makeup. But the older one, you know, he cleans up nice. At least that's what we're led to think. But when we look a little bit more closely at this parable, there are some interesting warning signs that there is a big explosion that is about to come. Luke chapter 15, verse 11, the parable begins. We won't read the entire first section of the parable since we've studied it the previous two weeks. But Jesus begins, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. He says, I wish you were dead, but since you're not dead, will you give me my inheritance now while you're still alive? So the father divided his property between them. Now there's something noteworthy here that's missing from this story. By nature of the fact that the younger son gets his portion of the estate, it means that the older son technically gets his portion too. We know that the chunk goes to the younger son and whatever is left behind goes to the older son. And what's missing in this part of the story is any sort of response from the older brother. He doesn't say anything. Uh, Bible scholar Kenneth Bailey is an expert in Middle Eastern culture. And he says, whenever there is a family fight in Middle Eastern culture, the older son has an important role to play. He has certain responsibilities that you are expected to do if you are the oldest child and especially the oldest son. You are supposed to help maintain order in the family. When there is a family feud, the oldest son steps in and helps to resolve it. The, the oldest son puts the other siblings in line. The oldest son stands up to the father and says, I'm going to help you. We're gonna, we're, I'm going to be here for you. But the older son doesn't do any of that here. He doesn't say, brother, you're crossing a line. I mean, that's what a good brother's going to do. He's going to say, hey, you're, you're out of line. You, you don't wish our father dead. You just don't do that. You don't, brother, you don't, you do, wow, wow, wow. Like, you really just asked for your inheritance? Seriously? That'd be a good brother thing to say. He also didn't say, hey, dad, don't give it to him. He's just absent. He's silent. He's disengaged here. He's checked out. He refuses to be a reconciler. He refuses to help bring unity to the family. He refuses to call out the wrong. He's quiet. Neither son even tries to live in unity with the other. So the younger brother takes off, and you know the story. He squanders and all that. He hits bottom, and then he says, I'm going to go home. I'm going to turn back. And then he says, I'm going to go to my father, 
and I'm going to apologize to him. He doesn't say anything about the fact that what he's going home to is actually going to be all of his older brothers, and that anything he's going home to means he's going to be taking his older brother's stuff from, from that point on. He doesn't say anything about being concerned about reconciling with his brother. There's just nothing in the brother relationship that's mentioned here. And the passage tells us that while the younger son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. So he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. We see the father watching and waiting and watching and waiting and watching and waiting for that younger son to come home, hoping, praying, patiently keeping vigil. Guess who's not there with him? The older brother. He's like, good riddance. I don't want him around anyway. He doesn't need to come home. As far as I'm concerned, he's done. I'm done with him. I've written him off. We're done. See, there, there were problems in this relationship before the younger brother even leaves. They're not talking. Nothing's happening. And there are problems while the younger brother is gone. Older brother is not interested. He's like, I'm moving on. This is just fine with me. But there's a whole new level of problem when the younger brother decides to come back home. So let's see how the older brother handles this. Not so well. Luke 15, verse 22. So the father and the younger son are reconciling. The father says to the servants, quick, bring the best robe, put this robe on him, put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. The son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and said, asked him what was going on. So he finishes his work day. He comes back to the house like he always does. And he's like, there are instruments. I see people. I hear the sound of footsteps stomping and people clapping to the beat of the music. I smell a fire burning. I smell really good food. What's happening? Now, in a normal situation, it seems like if you think, this is really unusual, you might go run to the source of where all the activity is coming from and find out what's going on. But he's instantly suspicious. Something's off here. And so instead of running to find out what's going on himself, he, he stops and he calls one of the servants to him. And the, the Greek word that's used here tells us that it's a little boy. It's a child who is, is one of the servants. And he calls this boy over to him and he says, what's the scoop? What's going on? Tell me everything. He, he, he wants, he, he's like, I know this kid will spill. You know, I'm just going to ask him to, to tell me what's going on. He peppers him with questions. And the, the young servant says, your brother came back. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has your brother back safe and sound. And the older brother says, what? Yeah, he's back. He's back? And... Like it's going okay? Yeah, there's a party. What do you mean there's a party? Like everybody's coming. There's food. Like he called in the band. The, the celebration's already started. They're just waiting for the food to finish cooking. Like it's all happening right now. It's like right now. What do you mean? He's back and it's going well? Yeah. And all of the months of irritation with his brother 
bubble up. All of the, the years of history they've had, his opinions about the way his brother was living his life, all the self-righteousness he had about his own self, like, well, at least I'm not living like him. He's a mess. All of his own woundedness, all of his own junk that he's brought to the relationship, all of this bubbles to the surface. And it says in verse 28, the older brother became angry. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Here's what the older brother doesn't do. Servant tells him what's going on. <gasps> really? This is wonderful. I'm going to go see him. Here, here's what he doesn't do. He doesn't say, oh, I'm so relieved to hear this. I've been so worried for him. I'm so glad he's safe. Here's what he doesn't say. I have been praying and praying and praying for him. Thank you, God, for this answer to prayer. He doesn't even say, well, this is interesting. I'm going to go find out what's going on. He's just angry. Like, angry. And he says, I'm, I'm not going there. I'm not going in. And the scripture continues, so his father went out, comes out of the house. The, the servant goes and tells the father what's going on. The father comes out and pleads with him, please come in. Please join the party. Verse 29, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you. Slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, kill the fattened calf for him. There's now a break in the relationship between the older brother and the father. As big of a break as there is with the younger brother and the father. And so the older son says, I'm not going in. The father comes out and begs with him, begs him to come in. And he says, no, I'm not even going to listen to you begging me to come in. Here are my reasons. I'm going to dig in my heels. I'm going to give you my reasons. This is why I have a problem with what you're doing, father. And he starts listing him off. Here are four complaints of the older brother. If you're taking notes, this is number one. The first complaint of the older brother. Complaint number one. I deserve more. I deserve more. I deserve a party. I deserve to be honored. I deserve to be the son who's lifted up. Not him. You know what he's been doing. You know how he treated you. You know who he treated us. You know what he did to our mother. You know what he has done. He, he doesn't deserve this. I, if anybody deserves this, it's me. And he goes on to say, I have been slaving for you. I have been slaving for you. I have not disobeyed you. I have done all the right things. I deserve the party. He doesn't. I have earned a party. He has not. How about you, church? Have you ever felt that God, God owed you something that you deserved? God, I deserved for you to come through for me on this. God, I did the right thing. And somebody else got the bigger benefit. God, I was obedient to you, and I did the right thing, and I didn't get the gift. 
Or, or maybe it's, it's the other way around. God, I got something bad, but it was worse than what I deserved. God, you were too hard on me. Father, you, you, you didn't give me enough. I deserved more of a party. Not that person. And we, we compare ourselves to, to others, to our brothers and sisters, to, to others. And we make judgments about whether God has rewarded us enough or not. Whether God has helped us enough or not. Whether God has given us favor enough or not. Whether God has given us enough popularity and enough platform, and if we deserve more than that. Whether God has provided enough money and resources. We, we say we deserve more with an older brother kind of thinking. So he says, look, Dad, complaint number one, I deserve more. Complaint number two, he says, you deprived me. You deprived me. He said, all these years, I have slaved for you. And I never even got a goat. And yet, brother here doesn't even just get a goat, he gets the calf. And he doesn't even just get a calf, he gets the fattened calf. I don't even get a goat. He says, you deprived me. I should have had more. And when we have that sense of I deserved more, often what that develops in us is a self-pity. Poor me. It's not fair. I deserved better than this. God, I don't know what God's doing, but like I, I just deserved more than this. I don't feel appreciated for who I am. No one's paying attention to all the slaving I have done. No one's paying attention to all the rules that I have kept. I'm underappreciated, and I deserve to be lifted up. I deserve to be noticed. I think a lot of us fall into that trap from time to time, don't we? We wonder why other people just have it easier than we do. It's not fair. We wonder why other people who aren't as good as we are have it easier than we do. We wonder why other people who have sinned in like way worse ways than we have, like really obnoxious ways, have it better than we do. Why do people who don't live for God have more money than we do? I think we wonder that sometimes, why things just don't seem fair. And it, if we're not careful, those questions can turn into bitter roots that poison us against God that turn our thinking to not just be about like, huh, there's mysteries of the world, I don't understand it, but shift us toward, hey, God's, God's messed up here. God's not fair. God's the problem. That's when you got to really watch out. So complaint number two was you deprived me. Complaint number three is I disown him as my brother. I disown him as my brother. That first point was about deserving. The second point was depriving. This point is about disowning. And he says to the father, all this stuff, blah, 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 me, all that I've done. And then he says, but when this son of yours comes home, <laughs> he doesn't say, but when my brother comes home, you do this. He says, but when this son of yours, when this person over here who I will not name, comes home. This is what you do. 
<laughs> he's, he is distancing himself from his brother. He is cutting him off. He is creating dis- dis- distinction. He is creating a boundary here, and he is saying, he is your son. I want nothing to do with him. I reject him as my brother. He is your son. Some of us are quick to reject certain other brothers and sisters in Christ as our own brothers and sisters. He's not my friend, not my brother, not my sister. I want nothing to do with them. I'm not speaking to them anymore. Here's the problem, church. When we do this with our brothers and sisters in Christ, which we do, you have to remember, we've got this thing called eternity that's coming. And if they're followers of Jesus and they put their faith in him, they're going to be in the same heaven that you're in. You're not going to get separate heavens. And so we, we have to wrestle with this tension of our brother and our sister. And we're so quick to say, I'm cutting them out. Boundaries are important. Boundaries matter. And there, there are times where serious boundaries need to be held. But I think that so often we are more shaped by the world instead of by the word when it comes to these things. I disown him as my brother. The fourth complaint that the older brother makes is number four, I disapprove. I just disapprove. Father, you're being an idiot. Father, this is bad business. You know what he did with the money before? Who knows what he's going to do with the money now? You know how he spent it before? Who knows what he'll do once he's here? Father, this is not even good common sense. We're opening ourselves up to pain all over again. Father, you're spending my future inheritance now on him? That's not cool. Father, this man is despicable. Do you know what he's done? Father, you are foolish. Father, of all people, he doesn't deserve the calf. (laughs) Father, you made the wrong call. Father, let it be known hereby that I disapprove. The younger son was estranged and rebellious while he was away from the house. The older son is estranged and rebellious in his heart while he's in the house. This is what rebellion looks like. What does a rebel look like? Rebellion looks like a younger brother running off to a far country doing what he wants. But rebellion also looks like the older brother. It can look like the older brother, hardworking, rule-following, Obedient, faithful, but in spite the outward appearance of doing the right things, there can be resentment in the heart, a bitterness in the heart, a self-pity in the heart, a disliking of God's authority. We must be as rigorous about rooting out our rejection of God's authority in the quietness of our hearts as we do in the flagrant and flamboyant throwing it in God's face like the younger brother. Rebellion was humanity's first sin. 
God did the Garden of Eden. He, he said, eat from all the trees. He, he gave them some rules like eat and prosper and work and like enjoy life. And then he had one rule to not do, which was don't eat from that one tree. Everything else is fine. Don't eat from the wrong tree. And they couldn't handle it because there is this temptation toward rebellion, these, these seeds that are just rooted deep, that became rooted deeply in us after the fall. And they had to eat from that fruit. Our rebellious spirits do not like to bow to the authority of another, not even God. We want to run our own lives. We all, to varying degrees, have these seeds of rebellion that just make us want to resist authority. There's a, a story from the Old Testament, a, a historical event that happened in 1 Samuel 15 about King Saul. I want to briefly tell about this, this thing that happened in the Old Testament. The prophet Samuel came to King Saul, and he said, Hey, Saul, there's going to be, I, I, I want, uh, God told me that he wants you to go and fight a battle. I think it was against the Amalekites, if I remember right. And you're supposed to go and conquer them because you need to punish and subdue Israel's enemies. This is for your protection and because of the promised land and all that. And, and so God says, Saul, you need to lead out in war, and I, I have two instructions for you. Number one, when it comes to the plunder, like all the spoils of war, like when you have war, if you, when you win— then you get all the sheep and the livestock and all the stuff and all the stuff from their homes. And that, those are like the, that's like the spoils of war. When you get the plunder, destroy everything that belongs to them. You can't take any of it. And the second rule is people. Don't spare any of the survivors. Like, everybody needs to go. We don't have time to go into that today about why God said that, but those are God's two rules. Well, Saul doesn't totally like all those rules, and he thinks, well, I'm going to add some of my wisdom to this. He thinks he knows better than God. Don't judge Saul because you do it too. And so when they win, Saul does a couple things. When it comes to the plunder, they destroy most of it. When it comes to the people, they destroy most of them. But when it comes to the plunder, Saul lets all of the diseased and weak uh, an old animals go, but he keeps the best animals. And here's what he tells himself. We're going to save these in order to do a sacrifice to the Lord. Oh, this is a spiritual purpose. We, we're just going to save the best of the cattle because, you know, we do these animal sacrifices. It's part of how the Israelites did worship. And, and we're going to save the best for the Lord. He's got a spiritual reason, right? We, we do this. We have spiritual reasons to justify why we change things just a little bit. And with the people, they end up capturing the enemy leader, the wicked King Agag. And usually in war, you wouldn't, you wouldn't kill the king, at least not right away. You'd bring him back, and it's kind of like this war trophy. Like, look at what's... And, and I'm sure they're thinking things like, oh, you know, well, um, instead of killing him, we're, it's important that we... Hold on to this trophy of victory. It's, it's better to spare a life, right? And, and they're justifying these things with spiritual kinds of reasons, with human wisdom. Well, the prophet Samuel finds out about this. So he goes to Saul to confront him, and he says, Saul. Saul sees Samuel coming, and Saul says, Samuel, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel says, have you now? Have you? Then what is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? 
He's like, I hear the ba's and the moos. What do you mean you've done what I said? And Saul says, oh, 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 it's, you know, it's, it's for the Lord. It's for the Lord. Samuel says, why, do you, why didn't you obey? Saul says, oh, I did obey. I did obey. I, I went on the Lord's mission. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, except for King Ahag, and I destroyed the cattle. I just brought some back for the Lord. Samuel says, no, 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 no. That's not what he said. That's not what he said. And Samuel says in the scripture, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. Saul loses his position as king of Israel at this event because he obeyed God 70% of the way. It's a rebellion to say, but God, I know better. It's a rebellion to say, yeah, I've, I've like obeyed like 80%, 70%, 90%. Sometimes rebellion can even look spiritual. It's for the Lord. It's a good reason. It's logical. It just makes sense. It's good business sense. It's good politics. And frequently, we are masters at convincing ourselves that our rebellion against God is justified and that we know better than him. So, back to the parable. The older brother has all these complaints. The father's come out to him, and he said, please with him to come in. The older brother says, no, I'm not coming in, and here's why. Number one, two, three, four. And then, interestingly enough, the father responds. He addresses these things. I find it fascinating that he does. Because if you remember from two weeks ago when we began this series, we talked about how when the younger brother set off from home, we talked about how the father doesn't try to stop him. The father, the father lets him go. He, he gives him the freedom to choose what he's going to do. But we have a new level of father involvement here. We have a new level where the father is saying, hold on, I want to engage with you on this. Hold on, let's talk for a minute. I want you to pay attention to what I have to say. So in response, here's the father's response to the complaints. The first complaint was, I deserve more. And you know what the father says in return? He says, everything I have is yours. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. The father says, everything you have has been a gift from me. You don't have anything that I haven't already given you. Your slaving away from me won't change that. Your, whatever you do as my oldest son doesn't change everything. You already have a lot. You receiving these things isn't based on how hard you're working or how many long hours you're putting in the fields. It's simply because you're my, my son. I've chosen to give you what I've chosen to give you. This is what I want. The son said, I deserve more. And the father says, everything you have is a gift, and I decide what you give. And I gave it to you joyfully. The second complaint that the son said was, you deprived me. He said, I wanted a goat. You didn't even give me a goat, and you gave him, him a cat. And the father says, the father says, everything I have is yours. Meaning, you could have done this all along. 
You have gifts from me that you have never used. You could have done a party with your friends anytime you wanted. You chose not to receive the abundance that I've already given to you. You've chosen not to appreciate what is already right before you. You're fixated on this one thing, but look at all that I have for you. So often, church, I think we can get petulant with God, like a pouting little child, and say, you're depriving me. And the father's like, look at what I've given you. Look at all you have. You're focused on this one thing, but you don't see the abundance that I have provided for you. So the son thinks the father's stingy, and the father's like, I've given a lot. Receive it. Enjoy it. Notice it. The third complaint is the son says, I disown him as my brother. He says, this son of yours went off and did this stuff. <laughs> Listen to what the father says. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. Who? This brother of yours. The father comes right back at it where the son had said, this son of yours, and the father says, oh, no, 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 this brother of yours is home. This brother is your brother, and you will receive him as such. The father is saying, no, you will receive him as part of my family. He is your brother, and don't forget that he is your brother. You'd better treat your brother like your brother. There, there's this, there is a love and a compassion and a grace in the Father, but there's this, there's this appropriate and loving confrontation in this conversation where he's saying, oh, no, no, I'm pushing back on all of your reasons and all of the ways that you're justifying your rebellion. I'm pushing back, and I'm saying, everything you have is a gift for me. You have gifts for me you've never used, and he is your brother. Receive him as your brother. 1 John 4.20 in the, in the New Testament reads, If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. If anyone says, I love God. If you're singing in church, I love you, Lord. I love you. But you hate your brother? You hate your sister? You're a liar, the scripture says. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's like our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ are connected to our relationship with the Father, because they are. The fourth complaint of the son was I disapprove. I just disapprove of the whole thing, Father. I disapprove of the whole party thing. I disapprove of him coming back. I disapprove of the celebration. I disapprove of like how nice you're being to him. I disapprove of the whole thing. You shouldn't give that much grace. It's too much. And the father's response is basically, 
get your priorities straight. The Father says, verse 32, but we had to celebrate. There's no other choice when someone from the dead comes back to life. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Of course, we have to celebrate. The scriptures say, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. God says, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It is up to God on how he distributes judgment and mercy. And God is always the perfect blend of justice and mercy. He is so perfect at it, our human brains can't even comprehend how that works out. Justice and mercy. It's the kind of justice and mercy that punished King Saul when in his rebellion. It's the kind of justice and mercy that says to the older brother, get your priorities together. It's the kind of justice and mercy that receives the younger son. And the father is essentially saying to the older brother here, my grace is perfectly given. I'll have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It is my decision. And right now we're talking about resurrection. Right now we're talking about out of the pit and back into the house. Right now we're talking about death to life. Right now we're talking about lost to found. In this passage, the father, when he first hears that the older son is angry and that he's not going to the party, what the father does is he, he comes running out to the younger son. And just like the father ran to the younger son while he was still far off at a great distance and he ran to meet him on the road, so we have this father now running to the older son to meet him out in the field, once again pulling, pulling toward his sons, calling them to be in the house with him. Once again, we have a father coming to pursue a lost son because this is a story of two lost sons. And just like Jesus came out of his heavenly house and he left the house, the house of the party, he left the house of heaven and he came to us and he pursued us. He came after us, leaving heaven, coming to earth, just like the father in the parable left the house and went out to the road and went out to the field. And we have in this parable a picture of a father who's in a position of choosing to beg from his son. A father who radically humbles himself to connect with the younger son, who humbles himself and says, come back home. A father who radically humbles himself with the older brother and says, 
I'm going to beg you to come back. It, that's beneath the Father's dignity, but he does it because of his love. And we have a Jesus who humbles himself, putting himself lower than where he should have been, leaving the house, coming out to the road, coming out to the field in radical humility, asking us to come home, inviting us to the party. And he says to this older brother, come home. There's a party going on, and it's going to happen whether you're there or not, but I'd, I'd really like you to be there. Will you come back to the house again? See, I, I've put myself out here for you. I'm sacrificing myself for you. I've made myself available. The question is, will you come home too? And the only question at this point in the, in the parable is how it's going to end. As I mentioned last week, there are, this parable is told in a set of three parables. The first parable is the parable of the lost sheep. There are 100 sheep, and 99 make it home safely, but one of them wanders off. And the parable is about how the shepherd goes searching after the one sheep and searches and searches until he finds him and brings the lost sheep home. And then guess what? They have a party. The second parable is about a parable of the lost coin, and it's about a woman who has ten coins, and she loses one of them. She can't find it anywhere, so she turns the house upside down. She cleans the house back and forth, and she sweeps in all the corners until she finds that coin, and when she finds that one last coin, she goes out and she tells all her neighbors, I found my lost coin, and then they have a party. And then we have this third parable, where there's this lost younger son who goes out and does his own thing, and the father waits for him, and when the son comes home, the father says, my lost son has come home. Let's have a party. And so we're, we're waiting here for this final part of the story. We're waiting here for Jesus to tell the story and to say, and then the older brother got it all figured out too, and then he came home, and then he joined the party. But Jesus doesn't go there. The parable is left unfinished. And Jesus does it on purpose. He, he does it so that we'll ask ourselves where we are in the story. It, it's like a choose-your-own-adventure. Where are you going to be? Are you going to end up in the house at the party with the dancing and the music? Or are you going to hold on to your resentment, to your self-pity? Are you going to hold on to your hatred of that brother or that sister? Are you going to hold on to the fact that God has just not been fair? Are you going to hold on to the, it's just not right, I don't approve, it's not how it's supposed to be? Are you going to hold on to that, or are you going to come to the party? There are three roads in this parable. There's the road to the far country. There's the road to the fields. And then there's the road home. And the question for you today is, 
Will you come and participate in the party? In the joyful celebration that Jesus has for us. And some of you might say today, I, I want to be part of that. I don't, I don't want to be an older brother. I don't want to be that. But, but I, I just don't know how to get rid of my resentment. I just don't know how to get rid of the fact that I'm pretty sure I'm right. <laughs> I'm just convinced that I'm right and they're wrong. I don't know how to get rid of the fact that I think God messed up here. Sometimes we think those things. But I would encourage you today, if you're wrestling with those questions, to bring your doubts, to bring your questions, to bring your concerns, to bring your conflicted feelings, and bring those to the party. Don't hold on to them and go back out to your field and decide, I'm going to spend that out in the field and see what happens. Don't do that. Come to the vulnerable place of the Father and bring your own vulnerable self and say, God, I, I don't know what to do with these things, but I'm coming to the party. Speak to me in this. Minister to me here. I, I, I believe in your presence being taken into me, and I just pray that you will transform me in a way that doesn't even make sense to me. Do something big in me, God. So God, we, we call up before you right now. And I specifically lift, lift up the brothers and sisters here today who, who can see glimpses of the older brother in their own souls. And Jesus, we, we say right now we don't want it, but maybe we feel a little stuck. And we want to be cleansed and purified from these ugly thoughts, from these opinions, from this self-righteousness, from this self-pity. We, we want to be free of that. And so by faith, Lord Jesus, we choose to come today to participate in your party. Asking for your supernatural transformation. Asking for your supernatural breaking of chains that are too strong for us to break in our own human wisdom or understanding. We just put ourselves in the presence of your Holy Spirit, asking Holy Spirit for you to do something big in us. So church, take some whatever time you need with Jesus, with the Father, and listen to his invitation to come home. And when you're ready, feel free to come and receive the body and the blood of Jesus.